My name is David Winning. I'm the Bureau Chief for the Wall Street Journal in Australia and New Zealand. And it is my pleasure to welcome you to today's discussion on the Trump administration's 2019 agenda and what it may mean for international allies, including Australia and the business community. When I was approached by the United States Studies Centre to lead this event, it was expected that together we would analyse President Trump's State of the Union address. Well, in what could be a metaphor for the administration, things change fast. The State of the Union address has been rescheduled to Tuesday, but Congress still needs to agree to a deal that President Trump will accept, including funding for border security. White House personnel is in flux, again, after the exits of Defence Secretary James Mattis, Chief of Staff John Kelly, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions late last year. The US is ramping up sanctions on Venezuela while seeking a resolution to a trade dispute with China that has unsettled investors globally. Democratic presidential hopefuls are starting to take away oxygen from the White House by campaigning for their party's nomination. And in the background, of course, we have the long-awaited report by Special Counsel Robert Mueller into possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. Now, with all this in mind, I reflected on the words of another president, John F. Kennedy, more than 50 years ago. Words that combined both the fears and optimism of Western nations at the time. He said, there is a Chinese curse which says, may he live in interesting times. Like it or not, we live in interesting times. They are times of danger and uncertainty, but they are also the most creative of any time in the history of mankind. Now, to offer their perspectives on our interesting times, we have an elite team of experts on US policy, who I will introduce now. Dr. Charles Edel is a senior fellow at the United States Studies Center. Previously, he was associate professor of strategy and policy at the US Naval War College, and served on the US Secretary of State's policy planning staff from 2015 to 2017. In that role, he advised Secretary of State John Kerry on political and security issues in the Asia-Pacific region. His new book, The Lessons of Tragedy, is due out in April. To his left, Dr. Stephen Kirshner is the Trade and Investment Program Director at the United States Studies Center. He is also a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute in Canada, where he has contributed to research projects comparing public policies in Australia Canada and New Zealand. Next to him, Claire McFarland is the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program Director at the United States Studies Center. Most recently, Claire was the Assistant Secretary, Digital Economy, Digital Economy Policy and Strategy with the Australian Government. And Dr. Elsina Wainwright is a non-resident senior fellow of the United States Studies Center's Foreign Policy and Defense Program. She is also a non-resident fellow at New York University's Center on International Cooperation. I'll now invite each panel member to outline their work at the United States Studies Center and their areas of expertise, starting with Charles. Right, well, thanks very much, David, and uh, thanks to all of you for uh, either braving the heat or just walking in for the extreme amount of you who work here. Um, so we're not gonna talk about the State of the Union, the speech, instead we're gonna talk about the actual State of the Union for America moving forward. Uh, and I thought what I would do is in brief, 
because I hope we can come back to this in Q&A, lay out uh, four different areas. Uh, so one is foreign policy challenges are likely to confront and preoccupy the minds of policymakers in Washington uh, this year. A second is the changed and changing political dynamics in Washington. Uh, a third is the rotating cast of characters, as David laid out, and in the White House on the national security team and what that means for process right now. Uh, and then finally, uh, a couple of thoughts on the fact that it's not 2019, it's actually 2020 already because we're talking about the presidential election. Uh, so first, uh, yesterday or Tuesday, if you do the math or if you subtract us over the east coast of America, the intelligence chiefs of the United States laid out that there are growing and diversifying threats uh, to the United States of America from North Korea's nuclear weapons, from cyber espionage emanating from China, from efforts to undermine American democracy uh, from Russia. Those are general and those will be persistent threats. But all you have to do is look at the calendar and open a newspaper to understand a little bit more specifically what's going to be at the top of the agenda for U.S. policymakers. Uh, the first two I would highlight are March 2nd, right? That is the deadline uh, that the Trump administration has given to resolve IP theft issues, uh, cyber espionage issues, technology, forced technology transfer issues with the Chinese, or we would see a, another kick up to 25% tariff rates on another $200 billion worth of goods. Uh, a second one to put on your radar screen is uh, there's been a lot in the newspaper here about Huawei over the last week or so, but the larger context is what's happening with 5G, right? Kind of the new frontier of where we're going on tech. And you're likely to see decisions happening soon on this, even in the next six months seem to be a very critical time on this. So you should uh, put two and two together. Uh, priority number one, China. Priority number two, China. There's going to be a lot more focus on China moving forward. And related to that, you've already heard that by the end of February, uh, President Trump wants to have his second uh, love fest, sorry, summit, uh, with Kim Jong-un, and there's talks that that will likely be, if that ends up happening indeed, in Vietnam. Now, once we take ourselves out of Asia, you know, there's a lot of things, but there are a couple of issues in particular that are right at the top of the list. David, you already mentioned a bunch of them. The ongoing crisis in Venezuela and how the administration will respond to that. By Saturday, this Saturday, you have a deadline that the United States has said it will withdraw from the INF Treaty unless Russia actually starts complying uh, with that. March 31st is the Ukrainian elections, and everyone thinks there's a very high possibility of Russian interference on that. Uh, you can look at the ongoing talks with the Taliban uh, about American drawdown within Afghanistan, American ramping up pressure on Iran, uh, the White House trying to fend off congressional efforts to limit arms sales to both Saudi Arabia and wind down American involvement in Yemen. And of course, the overriding conversation is really going to be, what is America's commitment to NATO moving forward? So that's just a lot of issues, but those are the ones that are going to crop up first in this political year. Now, second point is, you need to note that all of these happen in a very different and changed political context, right? For the first two years of the Trump administration, there were three political dynamics that were driving the politics of policy. One, uh, the GOP, the Republicans, controlled not only the executive branch, uh, the White House and all the departments and agencies, but the legislative branches as well. And you had, even though there were some grumblings and some dissent uh, from some Republican senators and congressmen, more or less unified voting in favor of where uh, the White House was. 
Uh, second one, for the first two years of the Trump administration, you had a fair amount of tug-of-war arm wrestling, that's the most polite way you could possibly say it, within the executive branch itself, right? A non-unified policy coming out of the administration. Uh, third dynamic is uh, Trump, being Trump, had the ability to command the stage and set the agenda politically on almost any given day, on almost any given issue, partially because his victory was such a shock, partially because he is so disruptive and has mastered the technology of social media better than anyone else, and partially because there was no institutional resistance to him. Now, flash forward to this point, all three of those dynamics have reversed. You now have a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives. That means committee chairmanships, oversight ability, investigatory powers. Um, you also have, in the White House, a more unified, more cohesive group of security officials. I'll return to that one in a second. And then third, Trump will still command the lion's share of attention. That's the way it happens. However, he will not be the only one on the scene. And that's simply because the news is not the 2016 election, the news is the 2020 election. There are other people on the scene who seem to be quite adept at social media and responding. Um, and on top of that, there now is institutional pushback in the form of Nancy Pelosi's uh, speakership of the House of Representatives. Uh, so let me return just briefly uh, to what this means in terms of foreign policy. Now I said that the story for the most of the first two years uh, was a pretty diverse team. That has changed. Uh, we saw this starting last year where you had H.R. McMaster, who was the National Security Advisor, um, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, and Gary Cohn, who's the director of the National Economic uh, Council of Advisors, all fired within three weeks. Their replacements, uh, right, so you have uh, Bolton um, as National Security Advisor, Pompeo, and uh, Larry Kudlow, what they share is more loyalty to the president. So you have less diverse opinions, less pushback, less inside the workings of government pushback. Uh, that's actually, that trend has continued, right? Nikki Haley's departure, uh, Jeff Sessions, who I'm not sure I would characterize someone who pushed back hard against the president, but in certain instances did, and of course Jim Mattis is uh, having left. Uh, what this means is you see a White House that has gained more control of the foreign policy process and apparatus. And what that, the implications for that are likely to be many. And we can say that Trump's instincts, if they were restrained and checked in many ways in the first two years, are less likely to be by the executive branch itself. Right? Congress plays a role here, but that means, for instance, tariffs, more likely. Uh, democracy, promotion, and human rights, less likely. Although with certain carve-outs, Venezuela, Iran, and Cuba, which you're seeing right now. Uh, support for multilateral institutions, less likely. Um, and again, uh, final point here is as we warm up to the uh, 2020 presidential campaign, I just make three points here that we can return to at any point. Uh, one, it's a very large field. Uh, thus far, eight Democrats have tossed their hat in the ring. Uh, depending on how you count, uh, the number is likely to go up to somewhere between 20 and 30. Uh, thus far, there are only rumblings that have really kind of skyrocketed over the last couple days about the potential for an independent third-party run. And there are not so much rumblings as whispers now on the potential of Donald Trump to be primaried within the Republican uh, 
primary process itself. Now, a lot of this I will hinge on the Mueller investigations. Uh, we don't know when it will happen. We don't know when it will hit. But when the Mueller investigations on Russian uh, efforts uh, to sway and distort the 2016 election come out, and when they say what they have to say about the degree of collusion and the potential for there to be criminal conspiracy between the Trump administration and potentially even the president himself, I think that will have an effect. Uh, we don't know what the effect is. It will be based on what it actually says, what evidence they have, how public it is, and frankly, how popular the president is within his own party at that time. But that will actually be a really large political dynamic that we're likely to see. Uh, swinging back to the Democrats, uh, I would say because the Democrats are clearly more viable as an opposition party moving into 2020 than either independents or Republicans, frankly. Uh, two things on this. The debate, as it always will be within the Democratic Party, will be between the center and the left. Right? That's pretty obvious. But the nuance of that debate will be how people read what happened in the midterm elections. For those of them that read the elections as all the energy that came out on the left, that is an argument for a certain type of candidate. For those of them that read the midterms, because right, you had more than one results in the midterms, as the suburbs and the Midwest are in play, that's a different type of candidate that it would prescribe. So you're going to see that battle play out. Uh, final point on this, though, is on the foreign policy side of things. I actually think that while there's a lot of debate to be had, and we're going to start the debates in June of this year on the Democratic side, I actually think there's likely to be cohesion. Slow moving, uh, not across the board, but on a couple of key issues from Democrats. Uh, first one, uh, more priority to mitigating the effects of globalization. Uh, second, defense of democracy and democratic institutions. Third, much more stalwart and strong statements against authoritarian powers. Um, and I think that's likely to hold no matter who is the Democratic nominee, frankly, because one, it's simply in opposition to Trump and where he is, and two, because that is the geopolitical context in which America finds itself right now. That's more than enough. Let me turn it over to Stephen. Thanks, Charles. Um, I've, I'll run through some of the various trade issues uh, that are salient at the moment and uh, where I see these issues going. Uh, trade has obviously been a source of considerable uncertainty in relation to the policies that have been coming out of the Trump administration and the various schools of thought as to how these issues might play out, some uh, scenarios more uh, optimistic than others. The approach that I've taken to these issues is to assume that President Trump will act in ways that are consistent with his beliefs on trade. And these beliefs are actually fairly well defined. Uh, and if you make that assumption, then you have to be very pessimistic about the direction in which uh, all of this is going to go. Um, and I would say that this is true also of US Trade Representative uh, Bob Lighthizer, who's a, a Trump appointee, and his trade policy advisor, uh, Peter Navarro. Uh, they too have very well-defined views on trade. Uh, Trump appointed them because he wanted to hear their advice. And my expectation is that Trump will continue to act upon their advice, and the administration will do what it says it's going to do on trade. Uh, and if that's your operating assumption in relation to the administration, then I think you have to be uh, very pessimistic about where this all goes. So to, to run through some of the uh, salient trade issues, 
the US Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer and the Chinese Vice Premier uh, are sitting down uh, for talks uh, more or less as we speak. Uh, this is ahead of the March 2 deadline for a prospective increase in uh, US tariffs on Chinese imports from 10% uh, to 25%. Uh, that has been threatened if uh, these talks do not go well. There's the possibility that a face-saving deal might emerge from these talks. It is not impossible to imagine both sides uh, signing up to a market access type agreement uh, designed to window dress the bilateral trade balance between the US uh, and China. Uh, this is something that would be targeted at uh, Donald Trump's preoccupation with uh, the trade balance between the US and China. Uh, but I don't think this is something that would settle the uh, long-run trade issues between the US and China. I don't know that this is a something that the administration would uh, agree to. Uh, if you look at the section of the 301 report that the US Trade Representative's Office prepared on US-China uh, trade issues, uh, that report presents a long list of grievances that the US has in relation to uh, trade with China. And the report makes very clear that the US will maintain and increase its tariffs on Chinese imports until such time as those issues are redressed. And if we take all of those issues at face value and assume that the US does actually want substantive uh, progress on this, those issues, uh, then this is going to be a very tough negotiation indeed. Uh, the relevant comparison I would make would be if you look at the Australia-China free trade agreement, it took 10 years to negotiate that agreement. Uh, I don't think the US and China are going to settle their trade issues between now uh, and the 2nd of March. If we um, look at some of the other issues in relation to trade, uh, sometime in February, the International Trade Commission in the US will hand down its Section 232 report on uh, national security tariffs on automotive uh, imports. Uh, because Donald Trump has a particular preoccupation with the car industry and, and car imports, I think this is uh, potentially a significant complicating factor for trade negotiations, not just between the US and China, but also between the US and Japan, uh, the US uh, and the EU. Uh, Donald Trump once said that he never wanted to see a Mercedes-Benz on Fifth Avenue. Uh, and I think his actions in relation to whatever recommendations the ITC makes on auto tariffs will be consistent with that view. Uh, so he wants to repatriate global supply chains uh, back to the uh, United States. Um, and this is something that potentially plays havoc with the whole structure of production for the automotive industry uh, globally. Uh, we then have the US-Canada-Mexico uh, free trade agreement. This is the replacement to NAFTA. Uh, Donald Trump has given notice of his intention to withdraw from NAFTA. And so this presents the Congress with a choice of either voting for the new agreement or basically having no agreement. Uh, and that latter outcome is one that nobody uh, particularly wants. So he is relying on uh, his attempt to essentially jam the Congress uh, on this issue and force them to, to vote for his agreement. I think the agreement ultimately will be passed by Congress 
um, possibly with amendments on things like labour standards and environmental standards. Um, but I don't think we can take for granted the fact that the renegotiated agreement will pass. Uh, the opposition to it will be found both on the Democratic side uh, and the Republican side. The original NAFTA vote back in 1993 was a closer run thing than it should have been, given that NAFTA ended up being an extremely successful uh, free trade agreement. Um, so I would not take anything for granted in relation to the, the outcome on this. Uh, and the worst case scenario, of course, is that the US withdraws from NAFTA, Congress votes down the replacement agreement, and you're left with nothing. The other area that I would focus on would be the administration's actions in relation to uh, appointments to the WTO, World Trade Organization, uh, appellate body, which is a key part of the infrastructure for dispute uh, resolution within the multilateral trading system. Uh, this is actually an issue that predates the Trump administration. The US has long-standing grievances in relation to how the appellate body has been operating. Uh, in the US view, the appellate body has been overstepping its authority. Uh, it has been supplanting the negotiation function of, of the WTO. Uh, and since the Obama administration, uh, really, the US has been blocking new appointments to the appellate body. So of the seven members, we're currently down to three. Uh, that's the minimum you need to hear a dispute against a WTO ruling. Uh, by December this year, uh, we'll have two uh, terms coming to an end, which means the appellate body will be down to one. Uh, if the Trump administration does not agree to a new appointment, then the WTO dispute resolution mechanism essentially ceases to function. And this is problematic because you then no longer have a mechanism for resolving uh, trade disputes. And so this raises a much deeper issue, which is the ongoing membership of the US in the World Trade Organization. And it's worth recalling that Donald Trump has called the WTO um, the worst organization uh, ever. Um, he has clearly no sympathy for the body, uh, neither does uh, Bob Lighthizer. And the US membership of the WTO comes up for a vote in Congress uh, every five years. Uh, and the next vote on this will be uh, in 2020, which is, of course, the presidential election year. Uh, it is unclear to what extent the president could withdraw unilaterally from the WTO without congressional approval. Uh, but that may not be an issue in that I can imagine situations in which you could actually muster a majority in Congress uh, to do exactly that. So it's not difficult to imagine a scenario in which having had the WTO uh, rule against the United States on a number of the trade disputes that are currently before it, uh, including disputes in relation to the Section 232 tariffs on uh, steel and aluminum. It's not, imagine, it's not difficult to imagine uh, the US firstly not abiding by those rulings, uh, but secondarily threatening to and then even acting on uh, a decision to, to withdraw from the WTO. Uh, this has very serious implications uh, for the rest of the world and to give you an idea of how serious things can get. 
if the US were to withdraw from the WTO, then President Trump, through presidential directives, can rescind essentially any of the trade preferences that the United States has granted to other countries on an MFN basis, uh, going back through the entire history of the WTO and the GATT. So this means prospectively that any country that doesn't have a free trade agreement with the United States joins Cuba and North Korea in being subject to the Smoot-Hawley tariff schedule of the 1930s. Uh, this is obviously a worst-case scenario, but I think it's worth highlighting just to dramatise the seriousness of uh, what's at stake in terms of the US role in the uh, multilateral trading system. And I find it very hard to believe that the multilateral trading system can survive uh, without US participation, much less uh, US leadership. So I think the stakes are very high and all of, this, all of these issues essentially coalesce in, in 2020. Thanks, Stephen. So my area is innovation and entrepreneurship and I think that we all know that um, in a former career incarnation, President Trump was a well-known entrepreneur. But I'm going to put it to you as well that, um, and this is perhaps something that future academics will study, that um, when you look at the uh, Oslo definition of innovation, which um, sets out that it's all about the characteristics of new delivery methods, new organisational methods in business practice or workplace organisation or external relations, that it's fair to say that Trump, by most accounts, has and having significantly changed the way in which presidents behave, could be characterised as an innovator. So, um, but apart from his embrace, embrace of Twitter, there's not really much else that indicates that Trump particularly understands or embraces technology. And so, in my assessment, the Trump administration is pretty quiet on the technology and innovation front. And so, as we look into 2019, there are some clues from 2018 that we can reflect on. And the focus of the White House on the economy and national security are really the keys in this. Um, and from an economic perspective, beyond trade, much of the activity of the Trump administration has been looking at agriculture manufacturers' apprenticeships and, and cutting red tape regulatory reform. November, and this, lots of the things I'm going to talk about are things that are easy to miss because it's very easy to get caught up in the, um, the, poli the political kind of maelstrom that happens and, and there, there's other things that is happening with, within the administration. For example, there was a presidential proclamation that November would be National Entrepreneurship Month and so there's these other things that are going on um, beyond the surface. Um, there's also um, Trump's pledge to the American Workers Initiative, which has been encouraging US companies to commit to training opportunities over the next five years. And um, the thing that strikes me about this is that it is positioned as being driven by the low unemployment rate in the US at the moment, and therefore that this training is about giving uh, workers the chance to move to better jobs with bigger paychecks, rather than due to displacement, due to technology um, or automation. Interestingly, it took President Trump more than twice as long as any of his predecessors to announce his nominee for head of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. He nominated meteorologist Kelvin Drogemeyer, and I apologise to Kelvin if I have muffed his name. Um, uh, he was nominated in July last year. 560 days after Trump became president. So the length of time that this appointment took is really an indication of the low priority the administration places on science and technology. Um, and where there is interest, it's largely in the convergence of technology and military force. 
So um, as you may have heard, space in particular was a big topic of interest to the President and the Vice President with the announcement and plan to create a US Space Force. Um, and, and following that, the Department of Defense has already established a space development agency and are developing a legislative proposal for congressional consideration in the 2020 budget cycle. Um, when you look at the areas of R&D focus, returning to the moon within the next few years for long-term exploration and utilization in particular, as well as human missions to Mars are areas of R&D focus. Um, so expanding the US economy into space is seen as the real opportunity here. And there appears to be quite bipartisan support for uh, enhancing uh, strength in space. So this is an area where progress could be made uh, in 2019. Uh, in September last year, there was also a major report released that followed a year-long review of the defence industrial base and supply chain. And amongst other things, this points to the need for a strong US manufacturing base, um, but also for the need for workers skilled in STEM roles. And so this need for STEM-skilled workers is something that we are all agreeing on, Australia, the US, and um, forthcoming research that's coming out from my team is looking in some detail at the workforce development policies at a state level in the US, and it's largely a bipartisan issue. Um, in December, there's a, the Committee on STEM Education published their report on charting a course for success in STEM education. It's a five-year strategic plan uh, for STEM education and it's based on a vision, and this is quite important, for a future where all Americans will have lifelong access to high-quality STEM education and the United States will be the global leader in STEM literacy, innovation and employment. So. The, the implementation plan around this is perhaps not quite as exciting. Um, it, it requires federal agencies who are engaged in STEM education to really report on their near and long-term actions by April. So um, that's something I'm not sure how much it will be held up by the shutdown, but April is a kind of time frame on that. And there's a heavy focus on data collection and measurement metrics, which kind of indicates to me that perhaps these are things that are missing from within the system. But underlying this is a sense of threat to US global leadership in tech which is coming through in a number of the areas that we've been looking at. Um, research from my team that was released in December looks at the current US approach to research and development, and, and in particular because there's a review going on at the moment of R&D commercialization in the US, uh, which is really interesting because in Australia, we look to the US as a leader in the commercialization of R&D, and yet there is a review going on currently within the US system. Um, there's a green paper um, out about this on, um, that's currently open. I noticed this morning that they have actually extended the deadline for submissions on that one, so that obviously did get caught up in the shutdown. Um, but optimization of technology transfer and increasing return on investment from federally funded R&D is seen as essential to maintaining leadership of the US in global innovation. And so one of the areas that kind of really plays into this where the Trump administration has been paying some kind of attention is the area of artificial intelligence. However, the focus seems to be very much on the benefits of AI. Benefits of AI for American industry is a tool to empower workers, to drive industry growth, and to improve the lives of Americans, and particularly research money has been put into health aspects of this. However, while the benefits of AI are being touted, there has not been much official discussion, at least not that I could find, of the significant challenges posed by AI and how to confront these. Now, the OECD have indicated that AI is one of their top three policy priorities for this year and next year, 2019-2020, 
and as well as trying to produce realistic assessments of the impact of AI, they're working to develop AI policy recommendations for their 35 member countries. So that you know that would be an avenue to look to in terms of, of where that goes. And working with MIT, they've kicked off the year with a policy dialogue on AI. So um, in the US, as in Australia, it seems very much that it's the academic and business community that are raising the kind of ethical issues around AI, um, and government is perhaps a bit slow to catch up. The, um, the, the national security strategy is very much focused, so it picks up AI uh, within that as well, but it's very much focused on US military strength, technical superiority and innovation within a military context. However, when you look at where the R&D expenditure is going, um, it's encouraging, one of the things that struck me that's really interesting is that it's, it's encouraging programs with dual use potential. There's military technology with a dual use potential for non-military advancement. And some of the areas where money is being um, put is around microelectronics, semiconductors, future computing, hypersonics, all of which are very interesting to Australia, and of course cybersecurity. Uh, and the military applications of, of AI in terms of decision support perspective uh, you know, are also included in this kind of public information. So these are the areas that the US is going to be focusing on from a defence R&D perspective throughout 2019. And then if you look into our region, because you know, I'm kind of conscious that APEC late in the year, um, beyond the political headlines of APEC, uh, the theme of 2018 looking forward was the vision for driving economic prosperity with a deliberate emphasis on digitalization. And one that specifically called out was the continuation of the work that um, APEC is doing on an internet and digital economy roadmap. And while many of the areas within this are broad brush, one potential future sticking point from a you know, regional perspective is around the idea of pro promoting coherence and cooperation of regulatory approaches affecting the internet and digital economy. And I think you can probably see where I'm going with this. Because regulation of the internet and the digital economy is one of the ongoing issues facing governments. What to do about the might of the large digital economy platforms um, that dominate the way in which we're communicating, the way in which we find and share information, and the way in which we manage our lives. Now, in Australia, the, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC, released its digital platforms inquiry preliminary report in December, setting out recommendations aimed at removing impediments to the growth and independence of competitors seeking to challenge market power of the tech platforms. But in the US, the debate around the market power of the tech giants was strongest around interference in the democratic process. And the April hearings um, that kind of came out of this were all about the transparency and use of consumer data. So the debate in the US is really covering whether and how to break up the tech companies and whether and how to protect consumer data privacy. But there's, there hasn't been any kind of formal inquiry and it doesn't appear to have been taken up by any of the government committees uh, beyond the April, the April hearings. And there's been some proposed legislation, but it doesn't appear to be gaining any traction. There's lots of discussion about it. Every so often, President Trump, similar to President Obama before him, makes a statement about the need for regulation of large tech firms, but it seems to be a case of lots of talk, but not a lot of action on this front. So my predictions for the year ahead is that the Trump administration will continue to focus on space and cybersecurity as part of its national security focus. It'll focus on STEM skills as a means to support employment. It will continue to be challenged by the question of what to do about, about artificial intelligence and whether general or specific regulation is more appropriate and to what extent. 
and we'll continue to talk about data privacy and regulating the tech giants, but we'll do very little, similar perhaps in fact to 2018. And my one caveat on this prediction would be unless there is a major cyber terrorism event, but that's really a discussion for another time. And over to you, Ellie. Thank you, Claire. Good afternoon, everyone. It's terrific to be here. So I'm going to also, like Charlie, I'm going to build off his terrific set of comments and look at some of the prevailing dynamics in Washington at the moment as I see it. And then I'll also look at some of the foreign and defence policy dynamics and, and, and priorities of the administration as I, as I see it. And then, because I know we've, we've talked it for a while to you and I want to get into the q and I'll, I'll very briefly look at what this all means for Australia. What are the implications of all which we've discussed for Australia? So firstly, in terms of the dynamics in Washington, particularly as pertains to foreign and defence policy, and I think this essentially remains a two-track administration. And what I mean by that is on one track you have the president with his, um, his idiosyncratic views and inclinations and deep-seated instincts, for example, on protectionism, on scepticism of alliances, on scepticism of multilateralism and of um, US leadership in terms of global engagement, uh, and a benign view of, of autocrats, as Charlie mentioned. And then the second track is this more mainstream Republican foreign policy um, strain. And that is more of a support for global engagement, support for alliances, and, a, and an sort of implicit understanding of their strategic importance to America as well as to global stability. Um, and a concern about issues such as a peremptory withdrawal of troops from, from Syria and Afghanistan. So what I see in terms of um, an ongoing dynamic of, uh, of President Trump's foreign policy and defence policy is, is, a, is a kind of tension between these two tracks, the interplay between them. Sometimes we see advisers um, amplifying his instincts and certainly that is probably going to continue and, and um, accelerate as Charlie suggested with, um, with National Security Advisor Bolton and Secretary of State Pompeo, there's um, probably enhanced loyalty to President Trump in those two men. Um, but then also sometimes the advisers and certainly other apparatuses of government seek to constrain and work around the president. Just look at the dynamics and how they played out this week, for example. And Charlie mentioned the, um, the release of the annual threat assessment um, that the Director of National Intelligence quotes, accompanied by Gina Haspel, who's the Director of the CIA, and Christopher Wray, Director of the FBI. They presented it to Congress this week. And it was a fairly standard set of, of, of threats that they outlined. That ISIS was still a threat, that Russia um, remains concerns about Russian interference um, in the American political process and looking forward to 2020 that continues to be something they're watching, and that North Korea is not denuclearizing. So we had a fairly standard set of assessments um, from President Trump's appointees. And then we saw um, President Trump's tweets in the last sort of 24 hours or so, seemingly almost rebutting these conclusions which, uh, which the, uh, his, his um, team had come to. Interesting also this week just to see Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell um, introduce, seek to introduce into the Senate a measure which which pushes back against um, um, pulling out American troops from Syria and Afghanistan. Now this is notable because uh, Mitch McConnell has traditionally preferred to work behind closed doors in, in his dealings with the, the president. To, to, so to come out in this public manner and, and renounce the president's position, as you'll all recall in December, the president was quite clear he wanted to um, precipitously withdraw the troops from Syria right away and he wants to halve the, the American troop levels in Afghanistan. So this is quite a striking pushback. As Charlie noted, um, Congress certainly hasn't been on the front foot in terms of pushing back against this president. Um, but this is a dynamic 
to watch. They don't have many tools, um, but they do have the tool of appropriation. So it'll be interesting, I think, going forward to watch how Congress and this Republican, um, this um, Democrat-led Congress with uh, House Speaker Pelosi, how this uh, seeks to um, deal with the president. It's going to be very interesting to watch. The second... Um, point I'd like to make is about US-China policy. Again, building on what Charlie said, it, this policy is, is, is very clear and there's a striking degree of consensus in Washington between Republicans and Democrats, but also a fair amount of the business community, that strategic competition with China is the policy going forward. It's quite remarkable to talk to, to people around town and to see the pent-up frustration that, that exists um, with, with the, their views on forced technology transfer, on perceived IP theft, their broader cybersecurity concerns, concerns about South China Sea militarization and so on. So I think you're going to continue to see a broad-based American pushback uh, against China across multiple domains. There's concern about um, foreign investment, concern about US supply chain vulnerabilities. It's, go it's going to continue across the board, notwithstanding what happens in trade, in terms of a trade deal in March. I'm suggesting this is a structural, a structural kind of, the apparatus of state has shifted in this direction. This is structural. The third point I'll make before I move on to uh, what this means for Australia is about broader US Indo-Pacific policy. And I'd make this point. The United States remains engaged in the Indo-Pacific. This is a policy which has, is strongly bipartisan. There is the American freedom, free and open Indo-Pacific policy, which is working with allies to support the building of infrastructure across the region. What's interesting in terms of President Trump's focus in the region, it remains North Korea, and we have the summit, the meeting uh, proposed in February next month, which is, which is one to watch, and the other focus is trade. But the President isn't focused so much on other issues, so there's a fair amount of continuity in terms of the Indo-Pacific policy, which will continue um, in the next couple of years. What will be interesting to watch is there is a focus um, coming out of Washington on the South Pacific which we have not seen in many, many decades. Some would even suggest since World War II. It's quite extraordinary, and, um, and it's the Chinese strategic overlay which is really driving that focus. And that leads me directly to what does it mean for Australia, and I'll wrap up with these three points. Firstly, this increased US-China strategic competition, which, as I said, is, is, is going to be a, a um, centrepiece of, of this administration, um, that's going to mean clearly a tougher operating environment for Australia. Um, Canberra is going to have to continue to navigate this rise in intentions and it's going to require I think Australia to be increasingly proactive in terms of how we shape our strategic environment in ways which best advance our interests. The second point I'd make is that the US alliance, the Australia-US alliance, remains fundamental to Australia's defence posture. And this remains ever more the case given we're in an era of regional military modernisation. Australian strategic posture depends on maintaining a capability edge vis-a-vis -vis other countries in the region, and we cannot do that without access to US military intelligence, US platforms and systems. Um, we can't, frankly, defend ourselves, protect Australia and its interests, unless, in the absence of the United States alliance, or if it's significantly in, reduced, unless we increased our defence budget by multiples. Um, and that's not a discussion I think this country is entertaining at the moment. Um, what this, um, I think Canberra therefore understands that it needs to engage multiple levels of this administration. Um, 
the, the cabinet members, um, Congress, um, all the different services like PACOM. It's interesting to see that uh, Minister Payne is over in Washington at the moment due to meet with, um, with uh, Secretary Pompeo and she's met with Congress. The last point I'd make is expectations of allies um, by this administration. They've clearly increased, I think. But that increase, that increased expectations was something which predated Trump. We were seeing it during the Obama administration with Secretary Def of Defense um, Gates and Panetta, for example. And I think it will endure after Trump, that, that they will, the United States will expect more of its allies. Australia is regarded as a good ally. We're regarded as a can-do ally. We certainly haven't received from the presidents that kind of critical glare that um, the NATO member states have received, for example. One area um, which, where Australia is expected to um, focus is the South Pacific. So I just come back to that point. Um, there is an expectation on the part of Washington that Australia will, uh, will maintain its focus um, and its involvement and its economic assistance and its assistance with infrastructure and security assistance in the states of the South Pacific. Now, of course, Canberra in the last several months has returned its gaze to that region um, and there has been a real step up on the part of the uh, government um, in terms of Australian assistance there because there is a bipartisan view in this country that it's in our, our interest to do so. I'll leave it there. Thank you. Can people hear me mic? other. Charles, both you and Elsino um, spoke about the, the changing political dynamics in Washington. Um, what tactics do you think President Trump needs to adopt to make this year a success and, and next year running into the, uh, the election campaign? I'm tempted to say that's a bit of an oxymoron uh, because it suggests that there is a true learning mechanism at the White House. Um, look, uh, that's also to say that the politics from the White House have held and been very beneficial to the White House thus far because it's been very consistent on playing to the base. And I think what Trump's uh, MO has been the entire time is it doesn't matter broadening the tent. I'm not going to appeal bipartisan. Yes, I know that there was entrepreneurship month. There's also been the return to infrastructure month at least 17 times by my count. Uh, this is not really where his instincts are. I don't think it's what he's going to adapt. Uh, although there might be tactical adjustments in place for bipartisanship. That all is to say that I would find it almost unfathomable for there to be a reconceptualization from the White House that this is now going to be a more bipartisan focused base growing set of policies and political initiatives that throw out from it. Look, frankly, uh, in the aftermath of the midterm election, right, George W. Bush, as he said, got a thumping, right, in 2010, right, sorry, 2010, 2006, readjusted. Bill Clinton, same thing, right, and worked with Newt Gingrich. What was Trump's uh, reply to losing the House by 40 seats? It was a great victory. So uh, again, what would the tactical plays be? Uh, to my mind, uh, the 2020 election will be driven by who can get more people to vote or who can make sure enough people do not vote. And it strikes me that Trump, I don't see uh, at this point any movement from the White House away from polarization.
uh, which is, I think, their go-to strategy, his go-to instincts, as you were talking about, some other instincts, I think that's likely to persist. Could I? Sure. Could I jump in on that one? Is that on? Yeah. Um, I think in terms of tactics, he could learn from the shutdown and what happened. I mean, in my view, he lost the shutdown um, quite convincingly to Speaker Pelosi and the House Democrats. Um, and I think made the miscalculation that Speaker Pelosi would be more disposed to deal with him on immigration, on the wall, on border security, after she became Speaker and had increased power than before. And that, to me, seems like that was a misjudgment, it seemed, and, and, and has been borne out, because we ended up on day 35 of the shutdown with the same kind of deal and arrangement where, where he was on day one. And the only difference in those 35 days was... Um, 800,000 federal workers not getting paid every day. I've just been in the States for a month. Every day in the newspapers, stories of the hardship these people were facing. Um, transport, TSA, queue, TSA um, agents at the airports um, not being paid, absenteeism understandably rising, air traffic controllers not turning up, um, worried about safety and security. It did seem that the President had a tin ear on these things, and it, it, that is reflected in the polling numbers. So I think he lost that one. I think there are lessons to be learned. As Charlie says, whether, whether this administration can pivot and learn them remains to be seen. But it would seem to me where to go, infrastructure is the key, would be an obvious choice. And I'll be, I'll be watching to see if he mentions it at length in the State of the Union address. He did mention it last year. But that is something that P P Speaker Pelosi has signalled that she is very amenable to discuss with him, and certainly um, Chuck Schumer in the, in the Senate is as well. So if he's going to learn about um, bridging the divide and, and, and trying to kind of remove the impression that he's got a tin ear, which really that impression was sort of forged during the shutdown, he might sort of make a rapprochement on the issue of infrastructure. Thanks. Stephen, turning to you, the, let's assume yeah, Trump lost the, uh, the shutdown. It looks at the, uh, the polling shows that way. How... How does this change the dynamic of the trade talks with China in the sense that Trump you know, maybe need to win on that more than he did back at the beginning of December? I think Trump calculates that tariffs work for him politically, again, because this is something that's pitched to his base, um, quite apart from the fact that he fundamentally believes that the tariffs work. Um, this may be a miscalculation on his part. Uh, I think he might or more than likely underestimates the extent to which the economic harm of increased protection could potentially damage him politically. Uh, and this is the, the danger, of course, um, that if he is miscalculating on this issue, then this is bad news for the US economy, but probably um, also bad news for his long-term political prospects. Uh, I think with respect to his base, I don't know that they will associate the damage caused by tariffs or the absence of a trade deal um, with China or fallout for the stock market. I don't think they'll attribute it to his trade policies. Um, and it's not clear that all of it would be attributable to his trade policies in any event. Uh, I think the danger here is whatever the bad news is, uh, economically or politically, uh, foreigners become the scapegoat for that news. Uh, and that creates a political environment in which trade tensions get worse rather than better. Claire, I mean, with regard to, um, I mean, China, how how is this affecting the dynamic with regards to innovation um, and, and the U.S. place in that? Given that, you know, China provides a number of students, a lot of finan finances for for research in the states. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and I think what what we're seeing from an innovation and entrepreneurship program perspective is that the threat of the rise of China from a technology perspective is has been really seen within the U.S. and so. Um, and so there is a recognition, and, and it's, it's borne out when you look at the data around things like um, uh, patent numbers, um, the amount of money being spent on research into particular technologies. You know, China is really starting to ramp up on a lot of those, those measures of innovation, and, I, and I, the US is recognising that, and that, I think, is prompting some of these responses that we're seeing, so responses from, from a military front, but then also the responses that we're seeing to things like this kind of analysis of the return on investment for research, research and development, this recognition that um, there are, there is a, you know, a, a threat from China and therefore how does the US need to look at the, the structures and the ways in which they are developing uh, or commercialising technology or taking products to market, you know, looking at a, at a country like China where there is much more of a blurring between you know, the, uh, the public sector and the private sector. Those kind of things are, are starting to come out in some of the initiatives that, that we're seeing in the US, particularly, um, and I would point you all to um, a paper that we released in December that is looking at, um, that looks at this particular issue, from a, particularly from an R&D perspective, and, um, and kind of points out the different points within history where the US has made significant changes to their innovation policy, um, often because of external threat or perceived external threats. And I would say that the rise of China at the moment is one of those that's you know, galvanised that. And with regards to technology, obviously the, the Huawei case, which, which, which Charlie mentioned, um, you know, has the US, do you feel like the US has been surprised by China's reaction to that in, in terms of how it's, you know, people are talking about hostage diplomacy, but certainly, you know, arresting Canadians who are, I guess they see as the sort of... And Australians as well. And Australians mm -hmm. as well. You, you mentioned that there's a border fight happening over 5G, um, not just in the US, but here too. I mean, what, why is that such a significant risk and, and, and how do you see that playing out? Um, uh, this is a really significant uh, risk because this is what the future of the world economy is going to be dominated by, uh, right? This is what the 21st century economy, how we communicate, how we produce things, how we ship things, how our cities, uh, how our governments are wired. The nodes of this is 5G. It's more than just you can do download pictures and videos uh, quicker, right? It's the kind of brains of this. And whichever country and companies have the ability to set this has potential security implications as well, no less economic uh, implications. So this is a fight for, as I think many are seeing this, commanding the high grounds of the economic plane for the 21st century, no less making sure that there are critical vulnerabilities not exposed to hostile foreign actors. So I actually think that um, uh, on the one hand, look, the talk has been revved up pretty quickly. I mean, it's almost, uh, Ellie, I know you were just in DC. It's almost like getting whiplash talking about China in Washington, DC, because it seems to have gone from zero to 180 degrees almost overnight. Uh, so, right, everyone can point back to Mike Pence's speech that he gave. You should look at that, which it was a very political speech 
but it also laid out very articulately the grievances that are persistent and widespread in the US and frankly amongst Western democracies as well and what the threat and what the challenge is. That's the good or bad part, but the kind of ringing the alarm bell, which I think if you travel to Washington, you will hear, as Elliot was just saying, from everyone. The part of the conversation that hasn't really evolved quite yet, which is, I think, a real opportunity for a cooperation between Australia and the United States, is, look, deal or no deal by March 2nd, these tensions are not going away. Right? There might be a kind of a quick deal that Trump will claim is a resolution. It is not a resolution. It cannot be a resolution because these are long-term structural challenges. Uh, frankly, I think where we're heading towards, I'm really glad Richard McGregor walked out of here because I'm going to contradict the last article he wrote. Uh, but where we're frankly heading towards is a real policy discussion about decoupling of the US and the Chinese economy, not across the board, but what areas need to be protected, what areas are we fine to trade with, and which should we be wary about. There's not been enough policy movement on that yet, too, either from Washington or, frankly, from Canberra. The second part, and Stephen alluded to this as well, is when we talk about supply chain shifts, if you are worried about critical vulnerabilities from hostile rogue actors, be they China, be they North Korea, be they Russia, frankly, you have to make sure that you don't have vulnerabilities within your critical infrastructure, within certain component parts, within the 5G network. But because most of that stuff is made in China, that's a vulnerability. So there's the beginning of this talk about, well, how do we actually help cause supply chains to shift outside of China for Western democracies that are concerned about the vulnerabilities this, this leads open. Part of this is happening naturally because the cost of labor is going up in China. And you're beginning to see manufacturers moving away from China to other areas of Southeast Asia. They're not necessarily coming back to the United States as Donald Trump claims they are. But policy movement around what supply chain shifts might look like, where Australia and the United States might work together, where they might enable Southeast Asian countries that are looking to have more coming. This is, I think, the big kind of areas that both decoupling on supply chain shifts, where the policy conversation is not yet caught up to where the conversation needs to be. Stephen, just picking up on that, I mean, what, what voice does business have in shaping or, or moderating the, the China policy? In Washington, I think business by and large has been a fairly consistent advocate of openness. Uh, I know the members of the Business Roundtable that are made up of the CEOs of the 300-odd largest companies in the US have been engaging with the administration on trade issues, uh, putting a free trade position to the, the administration. Um, I think business was probably somewhat influential along with the ag sector in the US in persuading Donald Trump that they needed to uh, retain some form of NAFTA 2.0. Um, so I think they were influential there. I think without the involvement of the ag sector and big business in, in lobbying to retain NAFTA in some form, that the outcome there could have been very different. Uh, so I don't think uh, big business is completely um, out of the loop, uh, but by the same token, they're dealing with a president and an administration that has very fixed views uh, on trade. Uh, ultimately, Donald Trump thinks tariffs economically are a good thing, and if you think they're a good thing, why would you not have more of them? 
Thanks. Elsina, the, I mean, where does Australia sit in this? I mean, how does it walk a tightrope between being, you know, a staunch ally of US defense and security and a quarter of its exports going to China and its fortunes being tied in that area? Yeah, uh, that's the conundrum for Australia, and I think it um, involves a recognition that we're not in this alone and that other countries in the region are struggling with this issue. Um, Australia has a significant trade relationship with China. It's our primary trade partner, but other countries do too and are trying to navigate how to maintain a strong alliance with the United States and how to, uh, to, deal, with, um, to deal with China and the, and the rise in tensions between the two of them. So Australia needs to continue to talk to Canberra, needs to continue to talk to Tokyo, for example, about this, um, to other countries in the region, to Seoul, to, to um, countries outside the region as well, to the United Kingdom, um, to members of, of um, European states, France and Germany, about how how to manage this, this um, emerging strategic competition, which is going to be the competition of our time. And just to build on something Charlie said before, if you look back to um, the, the, the Pence speech, the Mike Pence speech, which really set out the uh, dimensions of this US-China policy, the putative dimensions of it, but then you can go back to the national security strategy, the national defense strategy, which are a year or so old, and the United States was putting together the pieces of this policy back then um, and sketching out this view of, um, of uh, great power competition, strategic rivalry, not only with China, but with Russia being the order of our day. So in terms of what Australia can do, it has to, to be proactive in also seeking to maintain the rules-based order, I think, because what is um, going to help maintain stability is to maintain those rules of the road, which we've all lived by. So that includes freedom of navigation. That does include an adherence to free trade and continuing to talk to, uh, to um, uh, interlocutors in Washington about how we support the TPP. And I know Minister Payne's over there at the moment doing just that. So, so speaking up for the principles um, uh, which are so critical to, to the order we've all flourished in for the last 70 or so years is something Australia needs to do as well and talk to others about how to uh, navigate these shoals. And Claire, the, I mean, we, we've spoken about 5G and how that's been the, the sort of hot issue of the day, but where, where else in innovation and technology do you see fault lines potentially opening up between the US, Australia, say, and, and China? I think, so... I think, and picking up on something that Charlie had said, there's definite opportunity around the supply chain side of things. It's one of the things that I think um, Australian defence industry see as an opportunity, given the given the Five Eyes relationship, and uh, you know, and, I, and from what I um, hear from Washington as well, that that's seen as an opportunity for Australia. So, um, taking more active part and more participation within those defence supply chains is an opportunity for Australia. In terms of where there will be tension, I think artificial intelligence that I had mentioned is an area where there is going to be a lot of tension. And I think, frankly, that governments aren't well placed, really, to join that debate at this point because it's not, it's not, um, it's not necessarily... Artificial intelligence is not necessarily being used and data mining and, and those kind of structures are not necessarily being used by government in the same way that they are being used by the private sector and, and within the academic sector, which is why I think we're seeing that kind of push is coming from that direction. And then the question will be how governments respond to that, You know, whether it's the US government, whether it's the, the Australian government. It's why I mentioned... Um, 
about um, APEC and the OECD because I think those kind of international bodies who have a very important role to play in terms of the ways in which governments collaborate on those kind of big issues become increasingly important even though it's not part of the kind of day-to-day -day dialogue about um, that you'll see in the newspaper about these things. They're the, they're the kind of important structures that are perhaps the best examples of the rules-based order that are about how governments work together to deal with some of these kind of challenges. Thanks. Just conscious of time, so I'm going to change topics quickly and put it to all of you. I guess it's an obvious question. Um, Starting with you, Charlie, what, what's Trump's pathway to victory in 2020? Uh, Howard Schultz runs as an independent, splits the Democratic vote. Uh, he, the Mueller uh, findings uh, either are not that much or are suppressed, and therefore the GOP lines up uh, behind him completely. That's the path to victory. Stephen? I would agree with Charlie that the, the path to victory does look something like that uh, without knowing the democratic field precisely or the candidate. I think it's hard to evaluate how that, um, that uh, particular horse race would, uh, would pan out. Um, my concern is that the global economy looks like it's shaping up for a synchronised uh, downturn. Uh, starting this year, deepening in 2020, um, in a depressed economic environment in which the uh, US doubles down on protectionism, I think that actually works in favour of Trump, unfortunately. So, Claire, can Trump win if he just keeps going all in on the base, or does he need to pivot? I think he can win by going with his base. I think it will be about how much he can get his people to, to turn out to vote for him. He's a master at manipulating messages. Um, he's a master at using social media. If you want to study you know, how to use social media to galvanise your people, uh, he, he's, he would be a master class in that. So I, so I think, um, I think you know, notwithstanding something else significant that might happen, like some kind of big external threat, like a big kind of cyber threat, yeah, I think that, um, or, uh, you know, and the Democrats, I'm not a political scientist and I don't pretend to be, but I think, you know, I think unless the Democrats organise really well and pick a great candidate, um, there's a lot of headwinds. Well, let, let's pick up on that point for uh, Elsina. What, what kind of candidate um, of the Democrats is Trump most likely to fear and why? most likely to fear. Um, I tell you who he won't fear. He won't fear a progressive. And that's where, I, at the moment, some of the, uh, the, the people are putting their hat in the ring, they're all coming from the progressive side. The progressive side of the Democrat base is fired up. So we have someone like Kamala Harris, um, Kirsten Gillibrand, um, who are really appealing to the progressives, but then they are also being attacked from the left side for um, more centrist, more moderate things that they have done in their career and their past, which is really interesting. So. Um, he wouldn't fear, I think, an Elizabeth Warren. Um, he would fear a centrist like Amy Klobuchar, I think, potentially, because she is someone who could um, uh, attract a, that independent group of people in the middle who really are, as polling is showing, they're moving away from Trump and they're looking for someone to vote, you know, an alternative to vote for. So he will fear a centrist candidate. What I think at the moment will be interesting to see who the Democrats seek to rally around because at the moment it's the progressive side of the, uh, of the, um, the party which is all fired up and they're the candidates who are putting their hat in the ring. So those that the Democrat base are going to vote for, which could be a, a leftist candidate, um, is not necessarily someone the country will elect. 
Thanks very much indeed. Let, let's open the, uh, the questions up to the floor. Um, if someone would like to put their hand up, I have uh, colleagues at the far end of the room with a microphone who can approach. And if you could identify yourself um, before asking the question and also uh, which person you'd like to answer that question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, fantastic addresses, all of you. Um, I'm Simon Smith from the NAUS Group. I'm not sure who can answer this question, but my question is, if this session was happening in Beijing at the moment and they were talking about the US, what sort of grievances would they have about the way the US is treating them now and how legitimate are those grievances? Alcina, do you want to take that one, Alcina? <laughs> I think one of the, the grievances would have is that they see the US and US policy as trying to obstruct uh, China's legitimate aspirations in relation to economic development. So China has laid out a mercantilist uh, industrial policy that is designed to uh, leapfrog them in relation to, to key technologies. Um, I don't think you can deny them the aspiration, I think, but I think you know, the US has legitimate grievances as to the way in which um, they're going about them. Um, and so I think for China, they would have trouble making that distinction. Uh, I think the Chinese party state has a sort of mercantilist worldview. Unfortunately, what Donald Trump is doing is feeding into that, into that view and probably reinforcing it. Uh, so at the moment I think they're sort of reinforcing each other into this uh, downward spiral which was very different to the sort of engagement strategy that the US employed previously which was to try and steer uh, China in a more liberal direction. You know, the, the danger with US policy at the moment is that it encourages China to double down on the very policies that it claims to object to. If I can uh, jump in on that, I would say uh, if we were all privy to that conversation in Beijing uh, look, two of, two of the grievances have absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump. Uh, one is preventing China from assuming its rightful place as the Middle Kingdom. There are different ways to say this, establishing a sphere of influence. Uh, you know, it's always hard to pick anecdotal evidence and say, aha, we've now found the smoking gun, but you can see statements coming out from Chinese uh, leadership where Xi Jinping has recently said China wants to take its center part on the world stage, where you've seen retired Chinese admirals saying, look, why don't we just split the difference? You move back to Hawaii and we'll be here. But we generally don't talk about what does that mean after the US pulls back? What does that look like for Japan? What does that look like for South Korea? What does that look like for any democratic nation in the region? So it's a persistent beef with US deep engagement in the region. And you always hear this, the way that this comes out is, a Cold War mentality, that, that's the phrasing that Beijing used, which basically means we don't like your alliances. Uh, the second beef that they would have is one that can't ever go away while you have the Chinese Communist Party running China. It's that the United States is a deeply liberal society and country. And although we see variation clearly under Donald Trump uh, and his support for democracy, human rights, comma, or lack thereof, these are simply values that are part of American DNA. They wax and they wane, and they have policy prescriptions that wax and wane as well, but it's not like Donald Trump has the ability to change that the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today will persistently want to write about, investigate, expose corruption of US leaders, no less Chinese leaders. That is a persistent beef that won't go away. Uh, the third one that I would add 
uh, a beef that the Chinese leadership has with Donald Trump is, look, no one knows what effect the tariffs are having currently on Chinese calculation. But I think the beef is he's swinging back at them. And he's willing to take a more aggressive policy. Because thus far, to this point, the principal driving US engagement with China was that, engagement. And it's been a change, you saw this in the national security strategy, that these are authoritarian powers, both Russia and China, that are seeking to carve out privileged spheres of influence that put the crimps not only on a free trading system, but on democracy and our way of life. That's how American presidents always express this. And he seems to be willing to do something about that. And I think the Chinese leadership, it goes here, it goes there, but it's not quite sure how to deal with that. Yeah, if I could just follow up on that. I wouldn't um, itemize grievances, but I think there's a degree of perplexity, perplexedness um, in Beijing, per a bit perplexed as to uh, what the policy of the United States is at times. Um, is it the president's views on alliances, or is it um, all the officials who um, are at pains to reassure allies such as Japan and Australia that America is all in, all in. I think sometimes Beijing is unclear as to as to what the, the policy actually is. Um, I think there might also be a degree that they're perplexed as to the departure of Secretary Mattis in terms of ongoing military to military uh, communication with the United States because um, Mattis was a straight shooter. They understood his views and where he was coming from and that was, that was a, someone they could do business with. So I think there's a degree of uncertainty as to, as to how firm um, the belief in strategic competition is in Washington. And if anything, there is a risk that Beijing will underestimate it. And Dave, just to add one thing to that, because and it's, it's not so much about the grievances, but it's a really just an interesting thing to be aware of, is that China has been very upfront about their ambitions and their plans, and their, like, they've been very upfront about their ambition to be a leading innovative technology nation, and they're executing on their stated plans. So, you know, that's kind of an interesting, uh, you know, I don't know whether that was not necessarily, did people, the, um, the US didn't see it coming, but, but that's what they've done. They've set out a plan, and now they're working towards it, and very clearly, so. I guess the question, if I was speaking for, for, for the White House, would be, you know, to what extent they're doing it in a, in a fair way? And I'll cap that up with an exclamation mark, like a Trump tweet. Trump tweet. Can I say that that's not just, and this is the, everyone's talked about this, this is not just Donald Trump. It's really important to emphasize this because this will persist beyond 2020. Because I was watching a, Kamala Harris did her town hall meeting after announcing that she was running for president, and she got a question from a farmer saying, how are you going to ensure that we have free trade, but that's also fair trade. This is Trump's language. It's not because of Trump, it's because these grievances have been building persistently and across wide swaths of American society. And certainly Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer speak the same language on this. This they is do. not going away. Yeah.
Claire, do you want to take them? I think, you know, in terms of the burden, I won't talk about the cult of personality, but in terms of the burden that I think the next president is going to bear, whether it's Trump or whether it is a Democratic um, president or whether it's somebody else, um, is definitely around the huge shifts that technology is bringing to bear on on the economy and on, and on the life um, that we all live. And I think, you know, we've talked about a lot of, we've talked around the edges of a lot of those issues today, whether it's around 5G or whether it's around um, artificial intelligence or whether it's the, the way in which the world trading system works or the way in which foreign policy works. You know, these kind of fundamental shifts that are happening are going to be the, the things that, um, that the next president, the next prime minister of Australia has to grapple with. And, and I think the way in which they come to terms with those challenges and respond to them will really be the, the big challenge that they face and, and you know, they're kind of defining um, their defining moment. Now, I, of course, I would say that because that's what I'm interested. So, Charlie, from your perspective. Um, I think you vastly overrate uh, how cohesive uh, Americans and Democrats are. Uh, there will be a bit of a champion. Uh, we have a champion that uh, we're putting up against the president, assuming he's still president by that time, which we just don't know. Uh, but look, the left will be outraged if it's a centrist. The center will be outraged if it's someone from the left. I don't think that's likely to go away. Um, uh, the one thing, though, that I'd say are, are that if it is a Democrat who becomes president in 2020, uh, we have a pretty clear picture of what their agenda is going to be. Uh, it's going to be a unifying theme that they try at home, uh, trying to address economic inequality, not poverty, inequality. And it's going to be, as the Democrats will portray it, the repairing, the soothing of both uh, alliances, democratic alliances, and American leadership in the world. Um, frankly, uh, I think what American politics could use, not that anyone asked me, is a good, boring candidate right about now. We've had too much exciting, uh, but you know we're heading into kind of crazy season in politics, so I'm not sure we'll get that. Stephen, can I just just take it a step further? I mean, on, in the trade portfolio, um, let's assume a Democratic candidate wins in, in 2020. I mean, would we see the U.S. join the TPP, for example? And if they have left the WTO, would we go? Would they go back in, or would they just let it ride for a while? Yeah, I have a slightly different view on this to the one Ellie expressed before. So Ellie said that the biggest threat to Donald Trump is a centrist. I actually think the biggest threat to Donald Trump is the left-wing populist who potentially could capture a significant part of Trump's base. And one of the policy platforms that you could imagine a left-wing populist running on is in fact a ramping up of uh, protection. Um, and this would be not inconsistent with what a lot of Democrats have already said. So Chuck Schumer, for example, has been cheering on Donald Trump in relation to uh, his tariff uh, initiatives. Uh, you can point to many member, Democratic members of Congress who have voted against literally every free trade agreement that the United States has ever entered into, including the Australia-US uh, free trade agreement. Um, so I think the danger here is that you actually have a fundamental political realignment around the, the whole issue of trade. It hasn't happened yet because opinion polls tell us that Americans still, on the whole, view trade favorably. Not as much as people do in Australia, but still uh, there's a solid majority in favour of trade uh, and trade agreements. But that requires political leadership to sustain. If that political leadership disappears and goes the other way, then they can take a significant part of the electorate uh, with them. 
Uh, and so it's not clear to me that if you had a Democrat winning in 2020 that the outlook on trade issues necessarily improves. It could even get worse. Well, remember in the 2016 election, of course, Bernie Sanders ran on getting rid of the TPP and really um, constrained uh, Hillary Clinton's manoeuvrability. So that's why this next couple of years in the lead up to the 2020 election is so interesting. It's not just a horse race. It really does set the parameters for policy going forward. And one of the policy issues I'm interested in is Kamala Harris, for example, talking about Medicare for all. This is an idea like the you know, trade and, and inequality, this is an idea which, um, which might just gain some traction you know, within the certain elements of, of the parties, but it'll be just interesting to see where that goes. I think a gentleman over here had a question. Uh, thank you. Uh, Brett Gillespie from um, Elliston Capital. I, I run the Global Macro Fund there. So um, I guess maybe an observation followed by a question, if I could. Just on the tariff negotiation that's going on right now that we're waiting for. Uh, we do have all the hawks there now. We have got a more unified White House. But Trump um, is the one that sort of still is in control and he's, he's inconsistent or he's consistent when it suits him. So my observation is that since the share market route in Q4, he desperately wants to deal. This is, this is sort of what we're hearing from the consultants that we subscribe to in Washington. And so he needs a win in the next week. So we're actually expecting him to start tweeting from tomorrow morning that they've made progress. So to your scenario that you know we've got a win, the problem will still be there in the long run, but he wants a win right now in the short term with the, with the shutdown and, and the equity market faltering. What I, was, what I wanted to ask you about was we talked about what would help Trump win. Um, what's going to see him lose? In particular, the, the Mueller investigation and getting closer to Kushner. Uh, if he gets if he gets indicted, if he gets connected, will that take Trump down? It's still going to be very hard to impeach him. Do you see a scenario where the invest, you know, what sort of scenario in this investigation would actually be enough to either see Trump impeached or at least the GOP abandon him? Um, well, you've gotten very Shakespearean on us with the, uh, the inner circle of the family and what that will ultimately do, and everyone's waiting to see the sequel here. Um, you know, I think that as of now, uh, Nancy Pelosi, so someone said earlier on the panel that Trump thought he had a vulnerable Pelosi because if you remember after the midterms, there was a lot of agitation by new Democratic congressmen and congresswomen who had been elected who said, look, Pelosi might be great, but she's really old and we need generational change. Uh, and there was a lot of agitation and challenge to her speakership. Uh, what Nancy Pelosi did in the aftermath of that was like a master class in politics. Right? She wrapped up all those votes. She kept the Democratic side of the House totally unified through these negotiations and didn't lose a vote. And by the way, she punished a couple of people, too, by kind of shifting them to committees, kind of a master class in politics. And so what I think we've seen, I say that because Nancy Pelosi has been very consistent as the leader of the Democratic Party within the House. Remember, in American politics, leaders of parties are not quite that what they are here. Uh, we know who the leader of the Republican Party is, Donald Trump. Good luck telling anyone who the leader of the Democratic Party is. We'll know that only once there's a nominee. That's how it works in America. What Nancy Pelosi has said to this point is we're not voting for impeachment based on what we now know, which is a fair amount of wiggle room. And so I think you asked two different questions actually there. You asked what would lead to Donald Trump's defeat and what would lead to Donald Trump's impeachment. Uh, and we can probably even go further and say there's a difference between 
uh, forwarding the House moving articles of impeachment, and then actually the president being removed once the Senate finds it, right, which has never happened in all of American history. So anyway, to answer the, the short question, I don't think the House is going to move at all from where Pelosi has put them prior to the Mueller report coming out and potentially prior to hearing some GOP Senate defections. Right now, we've seen some GOP Senate defections on budgetary issues. It's unclear how far they translate it over. And that's all based and calibrated on Donald Trump's political vulnerability. But frankly, on the other side, uh, what will lead to his defeat? He will probably keep a very sizable portion of the American, uh, American electorate behind him. So the question is, how many other people come out? How exciting is the Democratic candidate at that point, assuming that he is still in control? Uh, and that is where the answer will be. Are they seen as extreme? Are they seen as someone that many people want to get behind? That's the path to his defeat. I think it's actually a bad thing if Donald Trump is impeached. I think it's far more preferable for the health of the US political system if he's defeated at the ballot box. Uh, I think it would raise all sorts of issues around the legitimacy of the process uh, if impeachment were to take place. And Ironically, it's an outcome that would uh, serve the interests of the uh, enemies of the United States, uh, including Russia, which would be an ironic outcome in this case. I think we've, uh, we've run out of time for questions from the floor, so I'm just going to ask single word answers, obviously. So I'll start with you, uh, Elsina. Trump president in 2021 or not? <laughs> I don't think so. No. No. Uh, will Trump win in 2020? Is that the question? Yep. Uh, I would say on balance, yes. Charlie, to finish up? I don't think so, but there are too many dynamics to actually definitively answer that at this point. The, the one thing, sorry, I'm exceeding my one word, <laughs> is the main dynamics that I see that are going to persist is, geo we have only touched on this, geopolitical competition has returned. And that is the underlying dynamic on everything from a foreign policy, technology, economic perspective. And it's going to drive most of the candidates and American politics beyond 2020. Great. Thanks very much uh, for your time. It's been a great panel. And also for the audience, I really appreciate the questions. And uh, we'll probably be hanging around for a little bit if you, if you want to come and grab us and, and talk through issues further. Thank you.